The following podcast is rated M for mature language, themes, and content. Listener discretion is advised. And it's also rated S for spoilers. Lots and lots of spoilers. In a world of cable cutting and video on demand, one streaming service offers a ray of hope to humankind. From the heights of science fiction, fantasy, and animation, to the depths of reality TV and everything in between. We're looking at you, rom-coms. Netflix originals deliver the content you crave, but are they good? We're about to find out. This is Netflix and Podcast. Listen, I'm a woman. I'm not explaining myself to anyone ever, (laughs) so. Nice. (laughs) And I can over-explain myself because I'm a man. Oh, yeah. You might it's all you about it's you all know? about balance. It's about balance. That's Mansplaining right. <laughs> and femsplaining is that the thing? Mm-hmm. Oh. So yeah, let's get into it. I'm Dr. T. I'm here with my co-hosts Joy and Seamus. Thank you as always for joining us here at Netflix and Podcast, the show where we talk about Netflix originals and Netflix originals only, examining them through the lens of storytelling, psychology, sociology, visual effects. And when it's all said and done, give it a thumbs up or a thumbs down. So today we're talking about Tiger King, Murder, Mayhem, and Madness, which went live on Netflix on March 20th, 2020. Yeah, Tiger King. So I don't really why, even- Why does March 20th feel like 10 years ago? <laughs> I think it was- So many things have happened. It was literally Ugh. 10 years ago. <laughs> It does. It feels like a lifetime ago. So how did how did you guys become aware of Tiger King? Because I believe for me, it was a combination of seeing it in the Netflix top 10 feature, which actually went live right around the same time when they started doing their national or uh, region based top 10 listing. And then it was just all over social media, like basically Facebook and Instagram, everyone was going bananas about it. How did you guys find out about Tiger King? Uh, just, uh, I saw it on Netflix and I'm addicted to Netflix. So I saw it there. I can't watch shows where animals get hurt. I get mm-hmm. way too emotional. It affects me too much. So I, at that time decided I would never watch Tiger King. And then everybody started talking about it. Then I read some articles about it and then I, convinced myself I was going to watch it. I started watching it and I turned it off right away. And then I think it was like five days later, I finally was like, okay, I'm going to watch it. And then I binged it in, I think four nights. Nice. So you yeah, had I, um, a hard time, like even getting into it, like you were in and then out and then back in again. And then I was so resistant. I did not, I didn't want to, but I felt after reading enough about it that I felt it would be safe enough that I could like watch it. And if it got really bad, I would just like turn it off. So or cover your eyes and be like, ah. <laughs> cover my eyes. Right. <laughs> yeah. So what about you, uh, Seamus? Sorry for cutting you off there, man. Uh, that's all right. That's all right. I discovered it. I think the same way you guys did, you know, I'm, I'm up here in Canada, but it was still a big, you know, regional top 10 kind of thing. I'm pretty sure. I went into quarantine up here right around that time. I didn't watch it right away, but not that far off. Maybe a couple of weeks later, because it was just, yeah, everyone was on social media at the time more than usual because they didn't have anything else to do. Being under house arrest kind of kind of deal. So yeah, I just, I kind of recognized him from, I think it was, I mean, it was during the the 2016 election. He actually was, he posted some video or wanted like, John Oliver, yep. Stephen Colbert or something was making fun of him. And this so, is Joe Exotic, right? Yes. So that way he looked familiar and I was like, well, I, but I didn't know it at right. the time. I didn't connect those dots. So I just kind of sat down and yeah, blew through it in a couple of days, sort of about as quickly as I went through making a murderer several, several years ago. Mm, uh, right. Yeah. So I found it organically as well because Netflix was pushing it and then everyone was talking about it on social as well. Yeah, so I think that this show, when it first hit, it was in the top 10, I believe like 16 days in a row. So I kept seeing it over and over and over again. Like you said, Joy, that trailer, I mean, dude, you watch the little trailer preview and you're like, what in the name of God 
is this <laughs> i think for me murder mayhem and madness is kind of what sold it i was like murder okay true crime into it mayhem i mean come on who doesn't like mayhem was, oh, madness well <laughs> what what pray tell are we going to uh, be getting into here i had to really kind of work my wife over though because i was it was one of those netflix shows where i was like look i'm gonna watch this one way or another you're either with me or you're or you're not <laughs> and i think you're gonna want to be with me for this because like you were saying joy it's a conversation that everyone was happening. I think a, an alien or somebody from the future looking back is going to be thinking like, what in the heck was going on then? Well, there's a worldwide pandemic and we were all stuck inside for a while while we tried to address it, which we sub subsequently seem to have just decided, well, whatever, we're just going to forget about it and just live our lives and spread viruses around willy nilly. But at that time we were trying to stay indoors and socially distance and everything. And so I think this quote from uh, The Hollywood Reporter really sums it up well, where the author Dan Feinberg said, whatever flaws it might have, Tiger King is a series that viewers, especially quarantine viewers, who might be feeling a little caged themselves, will tear into like a tiger into a pile of expired luncheon meat from Walmart. <laughs> I mean, that kind of nails oh, it. And God. I think from like a sociological perspective, this was definitely a right time and right place kind of situation i can't imagine tiger king having the kind of impact that it had in any and in any other point in history it would have been a curiosity no matter what and obviously they didn't know this the the documentarians and the producers at netflix i mean they were working on this thing i think the documentarians were were doing it for like four or five years shooting footage etc so it wasn't intentionally timed like this but it just hit really at the perfect time for this thing to completely blow up and kind of capture everyone's imagination for at least a few weeks there and obviously a few months after the fact, now that we're still talking about it. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see, well, there's no way to test it, obviously, but had COVID not been happening, would Tiger King be as big or would it have, you know, just been sort of like a smaller deal? But I don't know. I mean, when the first, I haven't seen the second season of Making a Murderer, but the first season, that was a big deal too. And it was about the same amount of episodes and stuff like that. And it, it started as one type of documentary and then evolved into something else much like this. So just something interesting to think about is like, would it be as big? Probably not just because people were, it was easier to capture people's attention this time around. Right. Yeah. And that's a good point. So let's get into it. Episodes titled, Not Your Average Joe. And the description for this episode is Meet Joe Exotic, the gun-toting operator of an Oklahoma big cat park. He's been accused of hiring someone to kill his chief rival, Carol, that fucking bitch, Baskin. Um, <laughs> oh, Joe, how did you get out of jail? Uh, showing up in my in my back porch recording area. So, I mean, that's that's kind of it. This first episode, it's an introduction to the cast of characters. Obviously, these aren't true characters; they're real people. But for the purposes of a TV show, for purposes of a series, might as well call them as such. And that's where we're getting here. We're getting this, this look at who's going to be happening here. Who's involved here. We've got Joe exotic and we've got these other big cat people right out the gate. We, we're hearing some stuff like big cat people and animal like exotic animal owners in general are a little bit odd. One of the uh, first things we hear is that big cat people are backstabbing pieces of shit. So then that's probably a little foreshadowing of maybe some backstabbing to come hear from somebody who has what seems to be insane clown posse prosthetic legs say that not every day you hear a zookeeper going to prison for murder for hire there's a lot happening we learn that there's more captive tigers in the usa than globally in the wild as a whole so there's a lot of stuff going on we've got this colorful cast of characters we know that there's some murder mayhem and madness about to uh, ensue and then there's also this kind of piece of just the animal rights part or the, the animal ownership part or, you know, the right to own big cats. There's this uh, animal rights piece running parallel to what seems to be a human interest story of, of mayhem and madness and insane gay drug addict rednecks. This was so hard for me to watch, honestly, because I'll start with just the thought of that snow leopard in that hot van mm. was enough to like mm -hmm. make me extremely sad and extremely upset and the fact that to learn that there are i had no idea i had no idea there were that many big cats and 
and not just cats, but all these different kinds of right. exotic animals that I always thought stuff like that was totally illegal. And the people that did it were either super mega rich people that could get like away with it um, and had like these big estates. Like I think about Michael Jackson, how he yep. had all these crazy wild animals. It didn't even cross my mind to think that there could be the thought of it. So I don't even go to zoos. I don't even like the idea of a zoo. It really bothers me. So the fact that there are people that are running these backyard zoos already like struggling, that was five minutes in, right? This is going to be really hard to watch. Yeah, I mean, that snow leopard scene is rough. The the documentarian, I think his name is Eric, he kind of mentions that he began this journey, quote unquote, investigating uh, what I guess was like poisonous and exotic reptile, poisonous snakes and exotic reptiles down in South Florida. So he was actually going to be making a snake movie, presumably. And in the course of some early filming for that, meets this guy who's got the snow leopard in a van. And I mean, we're talking, this is Florida. It's like 90 degrees out. It's a snow leopard. It's not supposed to be in a tropical environment, let alone in a cage, let alone in a van. And I think he says something, the guy's like, oh, well, you know, if they're acclimated to it or this, that, it's like, dude, yeah. So the snow leopard thing, super upsetting. And I think you're not alone. A lot of people, myself included, what, this is a thing. This is even going on. How, how are, how is this, how is this a thing? So that was kind of the, the first big shock. What was your thought on all that, Shane? It's just this kind of first opening salvo of, yeah, I mean, I, a lot at you, but it's, I, it's yeah, I agree with you guys, the snow leopard thing. And then the guy's like, you know, flippant explanation of, yeah, well, you know, he's born and raised here. So he's acclimated. It's like, no, that's not <laughs> that's not how uh you know mammals work uh in terms of of that kind of thing you know and it's yeah it's south florida in a van it's hot i don't know even in the winter like the temperature gets up to down there kind less of hot thing. yeah less less hot but still yeah. there's all kinds of studies about you know leaving kids and dogs and animals in cars and you know don't fucking do it right exactly kind of thing and it's like well this is an animal with like thicker fur that's used to the arctic mm -hmm. you know <laughs> like year round that was upsetting but it you know it's important to show that kind of thing to show the documentarian's uh pivot on why he changed you know going from poisonous snakes uh and exotic reptiles to what seemingly is turning into more of a big cat show and just like you said, Joy, I had no idea. I mean, I knew that like the exotic reptile adventure safari, whatever places existed, most notably in the South, because there's a a Southern comedian named Nate Bargatze. That, that's one of his, his bits. He talks about like how he brought his family to this $5 reptile thing. And there, he's like, yeah, there's all kinds of anti-government propaganda on the wall when you, when you go in. Don't tread on me flag. It, well, more so than that, you know, I mean, the, the Gadsden flag is, is one, one thing that a lot of people subscribe to that uh, aren't necessarily conspiracy and anti-government kind of deal. So I knew like the exotic reptile basement places existed, but yeah, big cats, like you need a lot of food and space, you would think. So it's interesting that, uh, you know, later in the episode, there's sort of like a cutaway to a police conference where this guy had like 19 mountain lions and six tigers and like all kinds of stuff just in his backyard decided one day to release them all <laughs> yeah from from a storytelling standpoint they they definitely set it up as to what you're going to expect is you're not going to like many people many characters as it were in this show but for me it's just it's one of those like train wreck things where it's like this is the most ridiculous thing i've ever seen because you, you just don't think something like this happens right and then right after that so you're you're primed you're like okay crazy stuff's happening whoa all these people own big cats what and then you're thrown right into well in the course of investigating big cat ownership why not find the the offender number one the person who literally has the most big cats and uh, one of the things you said joy was a backyard zoo i mean to even call these things a zoo is Kind of a bit disingenuous because it's like there's like legit zoos like and as you said there are issues with zoos just even as like a concept but you know you can make the conservation argument with well-run zoos that there are 
taking animals off the hands potentially or out of the hands of some of these private owners because that's really what this is this is private ownership of endangered animals endangered species tigers are an endangered animal uh, and it's just because we have a complete lack of government regulation over their ownership and people feel like it's their right to own a tiger just as it's their right to own a gun or, or anything else and we meet our main character the tiger king himself joe exotic doing his thing and this is this is joe this next part here where they first introduce him you know you see him giving his tiger show you see him being the man he's up on stage there's these these giant 500 pound tigers and lions and ligers and joe's at the center of the ring he's the pt barnum he's got the charisma you know what he's got a mullet he's he's kind of small he talks like he's been smoking cigarettes for years and he probably has but he's got that charisma he's got that alpha male status of just being the man being in charge you're really just kind of seeing him initially in his full glory reigning over as the king of misfits whole band of uh, it's like the island of forgotten toys where everybody's a little bit banged up everyone's a little bit roughed up but you know he's brought this this family together and created this world where he's the king so first impressions joe exotic that was my take you know what about you i think the documentary did a really good job of trying to make you really connect with joe you know they dived into his past and they did a good job in introducing him and kind of trying to not excuse his behavior but just kind of explain kind of where he came from and and how he got to that point yeah, I mean, how, I mean, how is this not just an act, like a, a character? I just don't understand how this is, like, when I, I was like, I don't understand how this is a real person. And the the music video, I, I lost it. I was like, what is happening here? Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it. Uh, you're right. They did a really good job. I think they did that with with most of the... I mean, certainly so far, you know, episode one, they show, they really dive into like their personal motivations for doing what they do. You know, later on in the episode, it just seems like it's setting up the more adversarial relationship between Carol Baskin and anyone else in this space. A story about Joe's father and him driving his car off a bridge as a result and, and all that kind of stuff. It, it, kind of makes you feel for him in a way that had you know I certainly believe had that not happened uh or been told within the story people would care about him less kind of thing it's like oh well he's just this as he was described by someone else you know he's a insane gay drug addict redneck you know with guns <laughs> and and all that kind of stuff and you see him buying you know explosives at some gun store later on uh so he's definitely got screws loose but the they sort of painted that picture earlier on too when someone just said yeah exotic animal people are already a little off and then big cat people are just one level above that too right so yeah i mean but he is definitely he likes being the center of attention he's a great showman he's charismatic in a way that you wouldn't expect because of his voice uh at least for me like for me tone of voice always makes a big difference even if it's like certain music to be honest you know there's a lot of people that that love radiohead for example but i can't get behind them because tom york sounds like a dying cat in heat to me you know and i think that that so just to kind of describe joe exotic born joe schreibogel so it is a character he he did decide at some point to name himself joe exotic he's got this kind of multi-layered mullet tops blonde kind of under layers dark he's got this little kind of goatee thing going on multiple ear piercings he's got a gun on his hip tight little jeans he's kind of a little guy too he's not he's not big but man a huge personality like you said Seamus charisma and I think one of the things that this kind of character always reminds me of is how much how much weight we uh, place uh just in our society and confidence for somebody to just be fully whatever they are gay gun-toting redneck 
like maniac. Hey, if you're fully that, people respect that. And I think that people can tell that there's an authentic, uh, an authenticity there that does have a power. It is captivating. And clearly that's part of why he's been able to do this. I mean, to take a big plot of land out in the middle of Oklahoma to assemble a hundred, I don't know, I think it's like 130, 140, maybe even more, 200 maybe big cats. 227 tigers is what he said. Yeah, so and that's just the tigers. And there's, you know, any number of other animals as well. I mean, just to do what he did, it, it's a big thing. Like he did create a big thing. He was streaming Joe Exotic TV, which actually roped in this guy, Rick Kirkham, who was a veteran uh, TV person who thought that, hey, you know, this is sort of the era of, you know, Ice Road Truckers and Duck Dynasty and Pawn Stars. And maybe Joe Exotic is going to be the next big reality TV show that I'll be able to sell to a network. So he's got a guy, you know, with a camera crew, kind of a skeleton camera crew, walk around filming him all the time. And you go into his gift shop and it's Joe Exotic's face on the little, you know, sexy time underwear. And he's got his lube and he's got his albums and his magazine covers. And there's just something that's so outrageous, but so unapologetic that it kind of works and it i don't know it's just it's a funny thing where it seems crazy but then there's also a logic to it where the fact that he's not apologizing he's being exactly who he seems to be which is insane gay redneck like drug addict maniac it's not that's just it that's it he's just being himself and being himself fully and i mean i think there's power there so that was kind of my big uh takeaway from joe and then seamus you mentioned carol who's kind of the next character that we get introduced to. And she's certainly presenting a very, very different image, kind of like a, a bit of a flower child sort of esque thing. What were your initial thoughts on Carol? I mean, initially it was like, ah, okay, I'm gonna have someone in this story that I can relate to and root for. Mm. So at first I felt that way until I saw all these people coming in buying tickets to go. Then I was like, wait a minute. She's like, I don't understand. This doesn't mean I was had this thought of, okay, so she's getting these tigers from these places, like rescuing them, just similar how you would a dog that was being mistreated or whatnot. But then when you go to rescue a dog, the whole point is to rehome him to right. a good home, not hoard. Just felt like she was just hoarding these animals versus like, Aren't there organizations where you reintroduce them to the wild? Maybe you can't. Maybe there's so much like gray here that it can't be black and white like that. And I, I, I would be curious to know, what does PETA really think about Carol? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. There's a lot of gray area in this because, yeah, not all, not all these cats can be reintroduced into the wild just depending on how they were raised and like, do they know how to hunt on their own? Like, are their instincts strong enough? And is Carol Baskin really one to determine the knowledge of that as well? Plus they're mostly tigers. So at least in the first episode, it doesn't seem like she's wealthy enough to be rehoming tigers all the way back to India and Siberia and stuff like that, depending on what part, what type of tiger they are. It seems like all the cast of characters, you know, the, uh, Joe Exotic, Carol Baskin, and then later on we're introduced to Doc Antle, who seems to have much more charisma and, you know, a different type of audience and staff and that sort of thing. But um, yeah, <laughs> he also says like, yeah, Carol just wants her to be the only one to have these tigers. She wants them all for herself kind of thing and what I wish they would have gotten into in the first episode I don't remember if they do later on is how much of the like revenue that these other zoos actually use to fund research and conservation and all that I know Joe Exotic just mm -hmm. talked about like oh yeah you put a cub in front of these people's faces and say like don't chop down the rainforest because you're taking where this tiger is home away all right, now my job's done because now they're at least aware. And it's like, yeah, but most people won't take action unless you tell them to or you lead the way by, you know, taking a portion of your proceeds and funding research and, and all that kind of stuff. And um, does that justify exploitation of those very same animals that you claim to be caring about? Right. And but who decides what exploitation really is? Like if mm -hmm. it's if it is, you know, an education sort of thing, like, oh, here's, here's a baby tiger, and then you teach 
kids or whoever is there about all of it as much as you can about tigers in that sort of moment, then that's sort of the gray area because, and they cover this, they're useful in that aspect until they get to about 12 weeks and then they become dangerous, right? So then what do you do? Because Carol Baskin is a cat sanctuary and there's, there used to be, I don't know if there still is, but there's a big cat sanctuary in Colorado where I'm from as well. And it's their education center, but they have to keep the lights on and the food into the cat. So they have to charge something type of deal. Like you have to get donations or revenue. Well, and I guess like that really reveals the problem that there's no government oversight. Uh, there's certain yeah. states that may ban private ownership of big cats. I believe California, for example, Carol's operation, Big Cat Rescue in Tampa, Florida, and the Greater Wynwood Animal Park, which was Joe Exotic's place in Oklahoma. Clearly, there was no rules in those two states. In both cases, they are making money. Uh, Joe was certainly making money. I don't think the Joe Exotic branded underwear uh, underwear were keeping the lights on. So he was doing the the cub petting and the like the tiger baby tiger selfies and things of that nature. But Carol's certainly taking donations. She's generating revenue to support her operation as well. So they're both making money. And the documentary definitely makes an effort to to create some equivalencies where it's okay we're we're looking at this uh, joe exotic guy and kind of pointing a finger at him and then they pivot over to carol and like you said joy at first it seems like she's the counterpoint but then very quickly they kind of muddy that up and say or maybe she's not that much better than joe because she also is you know perpetuating uh, big cat ownership as a private person she's not a trained zoologist. And I mean, I guess that's the other thing too. It's like none of these people have any formal training in how to properly handle animals. Are they licensed? You know, I I know that there's some, there has to be some like USDA or fish and game oversight to some extent. There's clearly no requirement for them to know how to properly care for these creatures who, as Carol herself mentions, need 400 square miles in the wild as their territory. And at her facility, they're not getting 400 square miles. At Joe's facility, they're certainly not getting uh, 400 square miles. So the animals are not getting their needs met. And who is getting their needs met are the people that own them. It's either the people who own them purely with maybe a selfish profit motive or people who own them for a different selfish motive that's maybe uh, more uh, to be seen as a savior, to be seen as a helper. And that's kind of more the Carol camp. So PR is everything, you know, yeah. and she definitely has much better PR in exactly. the social media world anyway, as this documentary right. uh, is starting. She hired people to follow Joe Exotic around when he was doing his traveling cub tour and, and all that. It's like, all right, well, clearly you have it in for this guy too, because you're spending quite a bit of resources to try and take him down. Yep. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're brand building, you know, each of these... Yeah people has a personal brand. They're making myths, they're telling stories and they're creating this aura around them. And it always comes back to, they say, oh, we're doing it for the animals. We're doing it for the animals, we're doing it for the animals. We love these animals. And you know what? It sounds like all of them are full of it when it comes down to it. They're all doing it for some sort of personal gratification because at the end of the day, these animals need to be in the wild or not on display. I mean, you know, you can, anyway. But that's the gray area too is like, to not just have them, be it, to not, them. Yeah. Right. Even then, like it, it, that could be a gray area as well, because, you know, for a long time, there was only one, I can't even remember how long ago it was, 100 years ago or something like that, the Tasmanian tiger, which is not a tiger, but it just looked like, you know, a dingo cross with, with a tiger. It went extinct and people could only see it in zoos because they just weren't mm-hmm. in the wild. And there's other animals like that that you want people to experience the animals that this planet has and sometimes it's just not possible to be able to appreciate them do we though like clearly us experiencing them doesn't really do the animals any good i mean we're commercializing them and we're commodifying them right which does allow us to in some ways preserve them in the sense that they are still alive mm -hmm. true yeah, because now we're, we could get into... We could get you know, into like way back in the day what we should have <laughs> yeah. done, right? And I'm not looking to go there for sure. But that is like the clear difference in between Carol and these other facilities. She's not breeding. And so I right. think that she can like say that she's not doing that. But beyond that and beyond 
her clearly wanting to work with Congress on legislation, mm -hmm. the fact that she did mobilize people to stop him from going to these malls, which I think was like good on her because like, I can't, they're just putting all these animals in the back of a semi and driving around. Like that's horrible. Yeah, It's clear that she, she's got it out for him. It doesn't really matter her intentions even if she's like, quote unquote, doing it for the Tigers. Yeah, she's still trying to take this guy down. They're all in competition with each other. She's just not showing off babies, right? That's like the only thing that I see is the big difference besides all the little, uh, you know, there's a bunch of other things, but yeah. yeah. Well, she's also meeting with legislators, but what she wants to get passed exempts her from those laws she wants passed, you know? So yep. what Doc Antle talks about is she wants to be the last man standing, I think is her his actual quote. Yeah. Which you know? is why I think like she's like an animal whore. I think she's a hoarder. Yeah. She's a hoarder. Well, she's got that personality too. She has the stereotypical mm -hmm. like crazy cat lady hoarder persona. Well, she's uh, allergic to cats, which is And hilarious. that's the funniest part. Yeah, like her first photo ever is with her and a cat and she's obsessed with cats, but she's allergic to cats, so she just wears cat prints all the time and it's you know there's she's got some screws loose too as i said she just has better pr she's right. going about it differently whereas you know later on in the episode like joe joe exotic just cannot stop talking shit about her on his on his platforms whatever they may be you know yeah i mean carol she's definitely more subtle uh she is maintaining the moral high ground for the very reason that you said joy which is that she's not actively breeding animals we're not given a whole lot of her backstory at this point in the series we'll learn more about her and can maybe question some of that stuff uh, with new information later but at this point it does seem that she's got the moral high ground she's not actively breeding animals but the two most egregious and most active breeders and and the ones who are really doing this are joe and then you mentioned uh seamus doc antle and he's certainly much more sophisticated certainly more polished than joe exotic uh has a much tighter run organization he frankly however creeps me out the first time i saw doc antle i'm like this dude i am dr bhagavan antle that is B-H-A-G-A-V-A-N-A-N-T. It's like, dude, you're like the stereotypical angry nerd LARPer dude from like high school who like somehow figured out that if you surround yourself with exotic, dangerous animals, you can get girls. And he's created this zoo, quote unquote, because again, it's one of these private animal parks that he's monetized and opened up to the public and puts on the shows. And He's also the ringleader with his act and everything, but he's got this harem of women like around him and he's got houses that he builds on the property for him. And I mean, he just strikes me as much more disturbing and much creepier because he's much better at the thing. And he's Joe's mentor of sorts. Joe wants to be like doc, you know, doc's got his five wives and Joe wants his multiple husbands. And I think that, Doc just really creeped me out. Like, especially when you throw in the cultural appropriation aspect of, it's like, oh yeah, well, you know, I studied with, uh, you know, Swami Satchidananda and, uh, you know, was given the name Bhagavan. And it's like, no, dude, your name's Kevin. Uh, you're some like, some random white guy. As soon as somebody starts putting up spiritual airs, that's just a whole nother level. He's not just saying, oh, I'm, I'm working for the animals or I'm trying to conserve animals. It's like, no, I am actually changing the world. Like this is a spiritual mission. And the people who are in my cult, which is very much what it is kind of like, it's, it's a you know, form of course of control that you know, creates a, an insular structure where people are kept away from their friends and family. And I mean, they're talking about it's a lifestyle to work at his facility. People work non-stop from dawn till dusk zero days off 365 days a year i mean this is like cult tactics 101 i think more so than carol more so than joe doc Annell is really the sinister one who uh, 
I mean, I think looking underneath the hood of what's going on at his operation, I think we would, would probably turn up even crazier stuff than what's going on with Joe Exotic because Joe isn't sophisticated enough to keep his mouth shut. Like you were saying, uh, Seamus, Joe's just crazy, running his mouth, can't shut up, has these big ambitions, but it doesn't really have the savvy to execute at the same level uh, that Bhagavan slash Kevin does. He's too emotional and reactive, whereas uh, Antle is calculating, uh, cunning, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and the the cult leader um, label, that's what struck me too right away. Like the more you learn about his facility and, and that sort of stuff, the more that comes into play. And I know they talk about that further in more episodes, but everything he does is calculated out guaranteed from the way he dresses that like safari hat where he yep. looks like Dr. Livingston, that sort of stuff. He comes out, starts his show riding this giant African cow elephant has his old archive footage of, you know, I've been doing this forever. This is me on Leno where I introduced, yep. he gave us a huge platform and, and that kind of stuff. Like he is the most savvy, which is probably why, in my opinion anyway, Carol tends to go after Joe right. more so because one, she gets a better reaction. I mean, it's mm. entertaining as all hell and she can use that as evidence against him for whatever her, her needs may be. And uh, yeah, I think at this stage, you know, one episode in Doc clearly doesn't like Carol because he talks about that, but he's... <laughs> He's more, even though he says Carol's he's ruthless. He's dismissive of her. Yeah, he, he says she's ruthless, though. Yeah. Doc is definitely the type of man that believes that women are beneath him. Totally. And is very dismissive. And, yeah, does think that she's ruthless and evil and conniving and all that stuff. But is just, it's like, you can imagine, because the documentary doesn't get into at least not so far like clearly there's this setup between carol and joe they're gonna go at it and then there's this doc character and it's like does she also go after him maybe she does and we just don't see it or maybe she like you said like she's not getting a reaction that's gonna help her brand right because maybe he's just whatever shoe fly like you can't do anything to me and Mm -hmm. also he puts on like this there's this sense of facade of integrity and like that he's doing it the right way. The whole thing about how he says it takes $10,000 to like feed Joe turns around the next segment and says, yeah, I do it for three. You wonder is doc really spending that much on his tigers right. or is he just saying that? Is it just all this to make himself appear different and better? Just as like we said, they're all just brands. Right. And yep. Yeah, And they're not being challenged. Like that's one thing that I think is interesting about the documentarian's approach at this stage, at least. And what we said at the top of the episode is it's introducing you to these characters, but none of them are really being challenged in any way in that they can say it. And then we just kind of move on to the next crazy thing. Exactly what you just said, Joy, you know, doc says, Oh, it takes $10,000 a year to feed a tiger, you know, they eat once a week. It's, you know, a certain amount pounds of, of meat and ends up being 10k I guess to do it the right way but there's no there's no challenge there's no actual investigation there's no actual looking at well is that true is he actually spending that amount of money is he doing the quote-unquote right thing or is he just saying it and it's an act and it's just another part of this kind of public facade that he puts on to cover for kind of a selfish enterprise to uh, you know, be gratified sexually or socially or whatever, whatever it is for him. Certainly, I think for Doc, it seems like the Hollywood part mentioned that like, that's definitely a big thing. He talks about all the movies his animals have been featured in, which again, we're just taking his word for it. I mean, I could say that I've had a lion in a movie. I mean, do you believe me? <laughs> I, don't, you know, I mean, I haven't given you a reason to think that I'm lying. But, um, you know, that's kind of an interesting take here where the documentarian is just showing it to you. And then moving on to something else and you're sort of left to maybe assume that it's true. You know, this even goes back to like Joe's music videos. I mean, you look at this music video and he's like, I saw a tiger. And you're like, that is a different voice. That is a different, that is a different person's voice. And then you hear Joe, he's like, I'm Joe Exotic. I'm a, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, dude, 
and this was something that was um, in a recent Malcolm Gladwell book, uh, talking with strangers, you know, we default to truth as human beings. We basically assume that other people are, are honest and truthful. And it actually takes a lot more energy to fact check and to disprove things than it is to just shotgun blast falsehoods. And I feel like that's, again, going back to this idea of the confidence of Joe Exotic or the confidence of Doc Antle or, you know, even the confidence of Carol, you know, they're creating these brands, they're creating these stories. How much of it is posturing? How much of it is, and, and maybe it's authentic in the sense that they believe the BS, but is it actually factually, objectively true? And I think that that's our own, our own capacity at self-deception can't be underestimated. I mean, we're very capable of believing our own lies and maybe that's why they're able to tell these lies so convincingly they believe them but again well, we don't we don't know yeah i mean as george costanza once said it's not a lie jerry if you believe it yeah the wisdom of costanza <laughs> yeah so i mean it yeah that's an interesting point you bring up though is you know the documentarians aren't really challenging them but when it in one instance in particular through the magic of editing you know it's doc says it costs 10 grand a year to feed right. one cat but literally the next edit joe is like yeah i can feed a, a tiger for three thousand dollars a year you know so it's almost like they're challenging each other without doing it directly you know they're just using mm -hmm. the documentary itself is using editing to have amplify that sort of adversarial relationship between the three of them you know and i do think that this show the documentary itself, Tiger King, it creates a situation where you empathize with Joe. And this is what you were saying earlier, Joy, where you do empathize with him. Like you hear about his, his dad essentially kicking him out of the house for being gay and brother is hit by a car. He says he had to pull the plug and all this stuff. And so you start to feel compassion for him. You start to feel empathy for him. But there is also a feeling that the documentary in kind of the same way that Joe or uh, Doc or Carol might be exploiting these animals, it kind of feels like the documentary itself is exploiting Joe in the service of this kind of dumb redneck narrative, which is what I kind of got from this $10,000 a year to feed the tiger versus Joe's $3,000 piece, because it doesn't go into Doc's methods. It just sort of kind of allows Doc to be this upper middle class sort of avatar. And then you look at Joe, the avatar for the, the, the working class, middle America or whatever. And he's getting expired meat from Walmart and he's picking up downer cows from a local feedlot and, uh, feedlot. and basically downer cows are sick cows that can't be fed to humans. Uh, they're going out, they're, they're picking up roadkill. And so they're really reinforcing a lot of kind of negative stereotypes around quote unquote rednecks. You know what I mean? I think that there's, there's certainly exploitation happening on the part of the people in the show, but then the show itself also feels like it's beginning to set the stage for its own form of exploitation, which is showing off this train wreck that is Joe Exotic and this distilled essence of this crazy redneck who does all these, these stupid things and all these over the top things. And that's kind of what I was sort of feeling at this point when I was watching yeah. that. It's, 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 Joe himself is being kind of subjected to maybe the same thing that he's doing to the animals. And I think that that is just one more example of how nothing is objective. You know, maybe the person, Eric, I guess is his name, who, who's filming this, you know, yes, he says, oh, I'm going to be doing this, this documentary about uh, exotic reptiles. Oh, wait, no, this other thing is, is more interesting. Big cats. Okay, I'm going to make this about big cats. But very quickly, the animals go to the background. And this, we're talking first episode. Animals are already in the background. Besides a couple little facts, like, you know, there being more tigers in captivity than in the US alone, than in the world as a whole, tigers need 400 square miles to, to roam around that they need to be fed, uh, you know, $10,000 worth of meat a year. Aside from a little, a little, a few factoids thrown out, the animals are, are firmly in the back seat. And what it's about is Joe Exotic, it's about Carol Baskin, their rivalry. And currently, Doc Antle seemingly kind of in the, in the cheap seats uh, talking about this. And things that you said, Seamus, is what's uh, Doc Antle's sort of stakes with regards to Carol. 
think that the Big Cat Safety Act that Carol is uh, pushing in Congress or pushing for Congress to pick up and make into a law, the wording of that, it's H.R. 1380, and it says, this bill revises requirements governing the trade of big cats, i.e. species of lion, tiger, leopard, cheetah, jaguar, or cougar, or any hybrid of such species. Specifically, it revises restrictions on possession and exhibition of big cats, including to restrict direct contact between the public and big cats, which is to say that this law Carol's pushing would essentially shut down Doc's facility. And that's the shows. That's bringing the cats out. That's bringing the cats to malls. That's bringing the cats to schools and, and creating the little tiger selfie lineup where people pay five bucks to get a, a little tiger cub pressed against their cheek and, and have a selfie taken. All of that stuff would go away if this law was passed. And so I guess this is another thing that goes back to Carol actually having much firmer moral ground to stand on. Because if she's advocating for that, it's advocating for something that is verifiably in the, in the, in the better interest of the animals. Because I can tell you what, an adult animal that's lived in captivity its entire life, going from one facility to the next, that's one thing. But active breeding of baby tigers and lions and, and who knows what else, chimpanzees, bears, I don't know, whatever else is, is being involved in this, raising them in situations where they're putting in close, they're, they're kept in close contact with human beings, they're, they're never going to be able to go back into the wild because they're, they're essentially broken. They're, they're trained to think humans are their friends. And you can see that in the way that Joe interacts with his, his tigers. They actually are affectionate towards him. That's a bad thing. You don't want a tiger to be affectionate towards a human being. They are apex predators. And in fact, when you look at Carol's facility, she even says, she's like, oh yeah, this one's grumpy. Like, oh, they'll tire, tear your face off. The fact that her animals don't get human contact, that they are aggressive, that's a good thing. It's like we, we don't want these animals to be treated and trained to act as house pets because they're not. They're 500 plus pound predators that are supposed to be roaming hundreds and hundreds of square miles of, of wild terrain. And so I just think that the, the breeding and the exploitation of the kittens which is extremely profitable. They mentioned that, or Joe, I think says you can make like a hundred grand or more from the time when they're born to, you know, when they're like 12 weeks of age and they could potentially take a, a kid's finger off. There's a huge financial incentive to be breeding and to keep a fresh supply of cubs feeding this profit machine. And then you've got this big outcome or consequence of that, which is lots of adult animals that have a much diminished profit generating potential that are going to live for 20, 30 years. I mean, these are long lived animals. They're going to be around for a long time. And after they've exceeded that, that kitten stage and yeah, maybe you could sell some tickets to a show or show them off for this or that, but you know, the expenses for that adult animal are certainly pushing or in excess of the profit that you can make from them. So it just creates a situation where you're just going to have all of these aged out animals in the same way that we have, um, issues with that in uh, for just regular domestic animals, people buying puppies and things like that from puppy mills and creating a supply of older animals that need to find a home. And oftentimes they can't find homes. And that's why we have uh, euthanasia having to be used to control their population. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised. And I'm sure we'll find out that a similar situation is true here as well, where, yeah, there's probably excuses made to find ways of disposing of some of these older animals because frankly if you keep pumping in the new kittens well you're going to have a lot more adults and at some point you're not going to have enough money even if you are feeding them roadkill and downer cows and expired walmart meat uh, the economics just don't add up so it creates an unsustainable system that is creating just so much uh, despair and um, you know pain and suffering in the process i'm so depressed <laughs> This is a feel good. This is a feel good show. We want people to listen to this and feel really good about life. For me to poop on. Oh my god. Well, things that we can be happy about. Uh, Carol Baskin's husband is hilarious, Howard. What did he did he say like I don't think he was the one that said that she was the mother Teresa. Yeah, he yeah. was. He was. He did. Oh, yeah. he's so he's he, he's just he's like, her doormat. He's the perfect like beta male tweed, like you know, little nerdy guy just fawning over her. It's actually quite adorable. I kind of I kind of like their relationship. I mean, they seem very genuinely happy together. 
It's not about being a doormat. He actually just really adores his wife. And <laughs> I think that's, we need more of that. That uh, She's his queen, K-W-E-E-N. Yeah. <laughs> Whether she deserves it or not. I don't know. Hey, she's got we're the crown. Gonna, we're gonna little, we're gonna find out. And she's got a little flower crown. So we've got so some good things there. Uh, Carol and Howard <laughs> are adorable. Um, mm. I do think that as ridiculous as they are, Joe Exotic's music videos are amazing. Certainly, if you haven't, <laughs> if you're listening to this and you haven't watched, I saw a tiger and tiger saw man. You gotta go do that. It's great. Um, oh. So there are there are little moments of joy sprinkled in here. But then we're right back into the depressing stuff, such as, you know, <laughs> Joe essentially threatening a small Waco if them animal rights activists come to take him down. In a well, TV interview. In a TV interview, which goes back to your point about him not really knowing when to shut up. So yep. the sheriff is like, well, I got to keep an eye on this guy. Apparently things devolve pretty extensively between Joe and PETA, where he thinks animal rights activists are, are coming to take out his facility, and maybe they are. There is some video of probably the nerdiest guy I've ever seen in my life saying like, oh yeah, I'm doing an investigation. Uh, just checking out some, just checking out what's going on here. And the cops are like, dude, like just get off the property and Joe and his crew are there. You know, so it seems like there legitimately are animal rights activists of some sort going to Joe's facility. He's certainly on the radar thanks to Carol's social media presence and the fact that they kind of chased him out of doing the mall kitten petting operation. I do think that what we know, though, is that Joe's husband, who he took as his husband, who's also featured in his music video, again, got to check that out, 19. So he definitely likes him young. We do hear from some of his other staff that were introduced to, you know, the manager who has the insane clown posse legs. I really like him. I feel like he seems to have yeah. his head on a little bit straight. Yeah, more he's kind so of grounded. Than Aside yeah. from the suicide pact he made with Joe. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah, that was, say that was a bit. <laughs> you just tell sure. Joe what he wants to hear. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, if, if Peter comes knocking, we'll just, yeah. We'll, we'll, yeah, yeah we'll we can it. totally shoot each other, but I'm going to shoot you first, okay, Joe? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's kind of the feeling I got, too. But it wasn't John Ranke. It was one of the other staff who's like, you know, I just got out of jail, and, you know, I didn't know what was going on in my life, and I was addicted to drugs, and this and that, and I saw an ad on Craigslist, and now I'm, te- I'm doing tiger shows. He definitely is kind of pulling people from the dregs of society, giving them a family of sorts, a, a community of sorts. Granted, uh, he's probably not paying them much, if at all. They're probably eating that expired meat too. Honestly, this is one of those things where I've heard a lot of people talk about Tiger King and they're like, it's crazy. It doesn't make sense. But to me, it makes absolute sense because you got to look at this stuff through the lens of transactional relationships. Somebody's got something that somebody else wants. Somebody who's got nothing, if you give them something, they're going to be loyal to you for life. And, and that's a lot of what I think Joe's doing. He's specifically seeking out people right out of jail who have no other opportunities, potentially homeless, who knows what, probably some of them young and attractive that could be potential future boyfriends and husbands and things like that, but also just folks that are down on their luck and give them a job, give them some sort of roof over their head give them some sort of place and connection where they can be successful. And yeah, a sense of belonging as well. A sense of belonging. I mean, it, it's very similar to people will say like, oh, how could someone be in a pyramid scheme or, or an MLM and you know spend all this money and, and not make anything back? And it's like, well, you're, you're missing the fact that they do get value back out of it. Now, it doesn't justify it. And it doesn't justify exploiting people. And it doesn't justify victimizing people. But you know, if you look at somebody like Joe, if you look at somebody like Doc, frankly, you know, you look at somebody like Carol, they've got something to offer. They've got access to these animals, which are powerful, that are intriguing, that are majestic. That's valuable. People want to be around them. There's that one guy who's um, a customer of Doc Animals. who's like, yeah, we were just here last week and we're back again. Like there's, there's an innate appeal uh, to just the animals themselves. So having access to just these big, majestic, wild animals that are beautiful and powerful, there's something. And then the person themselves, they're charismatic leaders that have the ability to kind of grant boons and graces to those around them, uh, you know, elevating their station. So there's the social kind of hierarchy that they create around them that allows for somebody to feel like they're part of an organization, that they're part of a family, that they're part of a spiritual community or whatever the case may be. There's value to all that. It's crazy in the sense that it's 
outside of our norms. It's outside of our kind of established social norms, but it's in very specifically logical when we look at all human beings as having basic needs and wants. And this is one way that people are satisfying those needs and wants. And granted, the person at the top of the pyramid is extracting a lot of value as well. And that's where we get into a lot of problematic behavior and victimization and you know, kind of perpetuating trauma and things of that nature. But there's certainly benefits to be had for everybody involved. Otherwise, they wouldn't be there. Maybe they're not allowed to leave to some extent. Like, you know, there, there may be some kind of more extreme control or things like that that we haven't really been exposed to at this point. But from what we've seen so far, people are in some ways willingly participating in this, whether they're a customer of the zoo, quote unquote, whether they're an employee or, you know, anyone else involved in some way. Yeah. I'm, I'm still feeling depressed. <laughs> <laughs> this is, this is going to be hard for me, but I'm, I'm going to hang in there. I mean, we've pretty much talked about the bulk of the episode. I don't think we really missed any of the, the real meat and potatoes of episode one. The last sort of final thing that we're given to tease us for episode two is a little prelude into Joe and Carol's rivalry and how it really gets kind of nasty and, you know, Joe's shooting at mannequins being like, that's Carol Baskin, blah, 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 or that's somebody from PETA. And they like put some explosive on the mannequin and blow it up. And then the screen switches over and it's like, call from inmate, blah, blah, blah. Lo and behold, Joe's in jail and threatening to take everybody down in the process. So for everything that we saw, we're just getting started. And I, I will say the amount of violence towards women at the end of this episode was really intense. To supposedly mail someone deadly snakes is pretty extreme, but to have a mannequin that you've labeled as a specific woman and... I mean, he put dynamite in a, a thing in between the mannequin's legs. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you guys picked up on that. Like that amount of rage and, and violence towards women of just like, man, this is rough. Going from the snow leopard and the hot car. Start with that. I want to shoot a woman in the, you know what I mean? Like just a kind of a rough episode. <laughs> Yeah, it and I didn't notice that the first time around that I watched the the series, but when I watched the episode this past week, I did notice the placement of uh, the dynamite that he bought at a pawn shop, <laughs> or he said it's dynamite. I think it's thermite is like right. the legal, yep. the legal compound you can get. So yeah, and apparently he's a regular there because the guy's like, "All right, Joe, you need any explosives today?" He's like, "Yeah, I'll just throw you some, you know, throw a couple extra in there." You know, yeah, definitely a regular at this, uh, you know, this gun store, or this pawn shop. <clears throat> to your point, Joy, yes, the the amount of toxic misogyny on display is rampant in this, and I think it's telling that at no point do we hear Joe Exotic say that fucking bastard Howard Baskin, not once. Mm. He does not direct any of this anger towards Howard. As far as we know, Howard is just as much, if not more, involved in going after Joe as, as Carol is. Frankly, a lot of what Carol's doing is having her Facebook followers call in and this and that, and he's not directing it towards them. So he's really latched on, Joe, that is, has latched on to Carol as the enemy. And I, f- I think, frankly, what this reveals is that we have an intersectionality of, of misogyny, of, uh, you know, this whole show I'm talking yeah. about. You know, the, the documentarian themselves has kind of like a sort of an anti-poverty or anti, I don't know, like a, there's clearly like some kind of like class classism. sort of, yeah, there's some classism, classism sort of happening yeah. on the part of the documentarian, uh, which I think is part of why Doc Antle, who represents more of a kind of an upper social class layer, he doesn't get the same kind of scrutiny that Joe does. He's not shown the way that Joe is shown. So that's at play. And within these power structures, again, it's not just the animal abuse. It's also abuse of women. It's, it's basically, it's abuse of anyone who has less power than you. And that's really, it's this trickle down of, of trauma from the power full to the power less. And everybody kind of has a place in the pecking order. Joe's not at the top of the pecking order by any means, but he's above, at least in his mind, Carol. And he's going to be damn sure to 
to let her know where her place is in his mind, which is six feet under. I mean, he says, uh, you know, something like that, uh, something like, before you bring me down, it's my belief, like his best effort at not incriminating himself. It's my belief that you will no longer be breathing. It's like, all right, dude. So you're, you're making a death threat, right? But yeah, so I think that like from a macro level, that's what we're really seeing here is systems of power and control that permeate throughout our society on display in this specific story it's those things aren't discussed or talked about at least at this at this point in the show we're just seeing the story and i think we as the audience have feelings related to our intuitive understanding of how those power structures work because we've all experienced them and i think you know your perspective joy is is very valid in the fact that you feel steeped out and gross about that i mean it it is it is gross and it harkens to a, a long history of abuse directed at women by men that's often unwarranted or stereotypical or whatever you know if we go back to how doc was talking about carol very dismissive and it's kind of like oh she's a crazy woman or whatever you know what i mean it's it's just happening at every level and then of course you know at the very bottom of the totem pole are the animals themselves that as we already talked about really don't get a whole lot of attention beyond that initial snow leopard in a in a van look or you know, when we see some of these shots of Joe's tigers eating, you know, the downer cows and Walmart meat and things like that, they really kind of fall off really pretty much immediately in this. Yeah, the animals are pretty much just a backdrop to the entire story that is more an exploration into a human story. Yep. Mm-hmm. You know? And it and it was crazy, like I said, quote unquote crazy from the lens of kind of the average American who frankly, we like, we like something to look down on. You know what I mean? It's like, ha ha, look at that train wreck. It gives us sort of that Schadenfreude sensation of uh, pleasure watching someone else's pain and stuff. I think there's, there's a bit of that, why we kind of crane our necks when we drive past a car accident. It's like, oh, wow, what's going on over there? There's something innately interesting about mayhem, madness, and murder. That's what the 34 million viewers who, who watch this in their first you know, watched Tiger King in the first 10 days that it was released, did, myself included. But what Joe Exotic really is, is insight into America. He's insight into ourselves. It's, it's, it's a story that I think we can actually use towards the purpose of good and not simply participate in one more exploitation for transient pleasure or self-gratification. That's my hope. That's my hopeful piece there for you, Joy. We're doing yeah. good in the world here, I think, by talking about this. <laughs> yeah. So with that said, um, <laughs> we'll do a summary of the series as a whole where we can officially give it a thumbs down or a thumbs up. But for episode one specifically, thumbs up, thumbs down, what's your vote? Just getting into this documentary, this first episode is a definite thumbs up. You you get to know the cast of characters really well. It sets you really up well. When I first watched it, I had to jump right into episode two right away. I couldn't wait. So it, it's like those McDonald's french fries. They're addictive. You can't put them down. You just got to keep eating them, even though you know mm-hmm. you're going to feel awful afterwards. Mm-hmm. So got one thumbs up. What about you, Seamus? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with Joy on that completely. Thumbs up. It uh because of a lot of different reasons, you know, they set up the environment of this entire story really, really well, even though the documentarian has some, some biases like we talked about, but it's only episode one out of 10. The production value and the, the way that they're laying out very layered and complicated timeline and story is, it has been really well done. I know I didn't really talk too much about <laughs> the visual effects of Joe Exotic TV in this episode. But even that for, for me, like as in with him as an amateur, whatever, you know, content creator, the, his studio was pretty impressive. He definitely sunk some money into that. And that was something that, you know, again, going back to the, the PR is everything. Carol has a lot better PR, even though Joe seems to be putting out a lot more content, uh, at least what we're led to believe at this point in time so it's just as compelling as making a murderer was for me four or five years ago whenever that came out 
So yeah, thumbs up for, for the episode, just because it really wastes no time, like in there and describing everything and kind of leaves you hanging like, all right, well, what's next? Well, I definitely saw Tiger King and Tiger King saw me. So thumbs up. (laughs) (laughs) I was, I was in the first time around and I'm in for the second time around and I'm looking forward to breaking down kind of digesting and contextualizing and, and kind of putting the pieces together for this show, what it means for us, what it means for us as, as people, and how we can how we can take something like this and actually transmute it and actually turn it into something worthwhile and, and good. And I think what we're probably going to get is discussions about mental health, discussions about trauma, you know, discussions uh, about violence uh, towards women and, and, toward, and abuse of animals. And, you know, so I think that these are important issues that is ugly and as painful as they can be, they need to be discussed. It is part of our shadow. It is something that we collectively, just like McDonald's, all participate in, whether we like it or not. I think it's our responsibility as mature adults to contend with and, and to reckon with this stuff. And so I'm excited for that part of it. That's what I think always interests me about uh, shows like this. I mean, it's salacious and it's interesting and yeah, there's drama and, and twists and turns and surprises and all that stuff as a hook as well. But really the big picture is there's something here. There's something here that needs to be dealt with and I want to deal with it. So that's it for Netflix and podcast episode one not your average podcast and looking forward to diving into tiger king episode two on the next episode thank you all for listening just a quick final note If you like this episode, if you want to hear more Netflix and podcast coverage of Netflix originals, let us know what you think by sending us an email at netflixandpodcastshow at gmail.com. That's netflixandandpodcastshow at gmail.com.